Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucking knots? What the fuckstables? What the fuckaholics? What the fuckadelics? Damn, that was good. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. On the show today, let's try and get this right out at the top. W. Kamau Bell is uh, back for a, uh, this time, a full hour, one-on-one. I've had him on a live one. I've had him on another show with another guy. But this time, me and Kamau are going to talk about it. That's right. We're going to talk about it. But uh, that's going to be happening. Also, I wanted to tell you that uh, Kamau is uh, about to hit the road for a tour. Uh, it's the Kamau Mau Uprising Tour, which launches in December. Tickets are on sale. Go to wkamaubell.com. That's W-K-A-M-A-U-B-E-L-L.com. I've actually got a couple of plugs for my buddies, if you'll allow me. One of the funniest guys alive, my buddy Al Madrigal, is going to be shooting a Comedy Central special. Jeez, I don't know. Is it a Comedy Central special? I don't know. It's a special. <laughs> I, I should I should know that. He's shooting a special with cameras. And he's doing it in Austin at the Moody Theater on October 25th. That's a Thursday. There's two shows. And you can get free tickets uh, if you sign up at almadrigal.com. Go see Al. Whatever he's shooting it for, it's going to be a it's going to be a great show because he's funny. I'm sure it's Comedy Central, right? I don't know. Somebody check my facts. Could somebody please Google that for me now or call Al and find out? I'm all full of the beans. I've been shooting all day. Now I'm not sure how much I can say about the show just to protect uh, the show and myself and not uh, get you guys all uh, worked up or speculating too much, but it's going very well. I will tell you that. I got a lot of lines to learn. You know why? Because the show's about me, it's centered on me, and it requires me to know what I'm saying out of my mouth, out of my hole. So I got to do that in just a minute, but I want to talk to you first, if that's okay. Thank you for all the stereo input. Some people sent me some websites. Some people told me, like, what are you out of your fucking mind? $10,000 for a stereo? Thank you. Thank you. If I was in full throttle midlife crisis, I would have bought that shit and regretted it i didn't the biggest fear about that i don't know if i mentioned that is that it's perfectly within my uh range of doing to spend a bunch of money on something that's not worth that much money or that i don't need and then be disappointed i mean how that there's a 95 percent chance that that'll happen this is going to be fucking great and you just dump the cash cash you don't have get yourself in debt to have that feeling of owning that shit in that moment and then you bring it home and you're like ah this isn't even that great that the entire American economy is built on that. That disappointment and the need to buy something else to fill that hole that was carved out of your soul by that disappointment. It was probably a much deeper and earlier hole, but you know what I'm saying. But some people sent me websites uh, that deal in vintage uh, gear. That looked pretty good, but that gets overwhelming. I don't even know which fucking vintage gear to get. But then someone hit me, this uh, woman who owns a place down on Figueroa here in Highland Park, Mount uh, Mount Analog. She just sends me an email. 
Says she's got books and audio equipment and all kinds of shit down there. So now I, I'm excited to go down. I'm I'm giving her a plug on speculation just out of my excitement because I've decided I'm going to find what I need to buy at that store. That store is some sort of journey I'm going to make that is going to give me what I need. I hope it pans out that way. And then I ran into uh, Jonathan Larroquette, who I've never met, who does the, uh, oh yeah, dude. Oh, yeah, dude, podcast. They were podcasting before any of us. Great podcast. So I hear from my girlfriend, Jessica, who no longer listens to my podcast because she prefers to listen to John Larroquette, Jonathan Larroquette, and his uh, partner. But I ran into him in the most weird way. I mean, I was just, we were shooting at this restaurant down in Highland Park, and I had about an hour in between shoots, and I went to this music store that I'd never been in in my fucking life, and I walk in, there's a large... Not a large guy, but a tall guy with a beard and long hair. I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? I never knew this place was here. Cool guitars. He's like, you're Mark Marin. I'm like, yeah. He's I'm Jonathan Larkett. I'm like, holy shit. You're the host of that podcast that was on before all of ours. And my girlfriend listens to you constantly. She's filling me in on the history of you because she has to start at the beginning of everything. And we hung out. We talked. Maybe I'll get him on the podcast. Nice guy. But his buddy, Mondo... That's the only reason I'm telling you this story outside of dropping John Jonathan Larroquette's name is that I met a guy named Mondo today. <laughs> you you got to talk about meeting a guy named Mondo. That's the best name in the world. Hey, my name's Mondo. Oh, shit. It is? Well, I'm going to have to talk about that because that's a great fucking name. I'd like to be Mondo Marin if I could. Will you guys call me that? Mondo Marin from here on out? Hey, Mondo. That's my name. Good name. So I've got hope around the stereo. Boomer's not back yet, but in my heart and mind, Boomer lives, and I will hold on to a a, a glimmer of hope because I keep getting emails from people that say, my cat disappeared for most of my life and came back. It's beautiful, and I appreciate the outpouring of love and support. Love those stories. I lost my cat when I was six, and then when I was an adult and had moved four times, my cat showed up. It was amazing. I'm holding on to that hope, but I'm also holding on to the myth that is Boomer. That is happening. I don't want to bum anybody out here. I got a whirly pop in the mail today. Do you know that song? I got a whirly pop. Popcorn maker. They're not paying for for a plug. To tell you the truth, I threw out a whirly pop popcorn maker about two months ago because someone gave me one. But I got another one. You know why? Because my lovely girlfriend, Jessica, for my birthday bought me a surprise i didn't know what it was going to be until uh we went i knew that i had to uh, go somewhere i i asked her should i be wearing clothes should i uh should i prepare myself for something do i need to have clean underpants she took me for my birthday to a home coffee roasting class i'm not a big class guy it was at this place called the institute of domestic technology free plug show for fuck's sake is there anything else I could plug for free? Let me just look around my desk. Hey, maybe, uh, what is this stuff called? Dust off. The original duster. Hey, why don't I just clean my keyboard? Does anyone else need a free fucking plug? Jesus Christ. The Institute of Domestic Technology. Rediscovering the future of home economics. You know, pickling and whatnot, making your own cheese. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they make soap, cooking. But okay, so we went. And you you always wonder when you go to a class who's going to be in this class. 
And then you realize, like, what kind of people are these? And then you realize, like, oh, it's they're, I'm the same kind of people as these people. But it was pretty fascinating because I didn't realize uh, a lot of things about coffee. I've recently been enjoying a medium roast coffee because I was told that has more caffeine and more flavor. I wasn't quite sold on it. But after learning about the coffee, we started with green beans. And he, you can roast coffee in a whirly pop. It was very exciting. You got to figure out the, the right heat to slow roast them and then you got to keep them moving and then at six minutes there's a the first crack all of them start popping like popcorn and then about four or five minutes after that they start you get into your medium roast and then you got to keep your eye on it and when the and when the the oils start to show up you enter your dark roast zone and then uh, about 10 minutes in you fucked it up got to start over we did medium roast. We tasted all different kinds of roasts and we I learned about all the different kind of beans. I know a lot about coffee now. But I'm not going to be one of those people. You know, there's a lot of talk of like, what's the perfect temperature for the water? You know, how long do you let the beans soak? What's the perfect ratio? Blah, blah, blah. Look, I just want it in my body. You know how it goes. Let's just get it going. I like it if it tastes good. But I'm that kind of person. Like, there's part of me that thinks like, we need to, you know, get a temperature for the water and we need to get the French presses up and running. And we need to uh, perhaps, uh, you know, roast our own coffee. So I fell for it all. And my whirly pop came today. So you know what I'll be doing? roasting my own coffee soon and you know what i'll be doing in about two weeks throwing away my whirly pop <laughs> uh, but it was fascinating and i did learn a lot i'm still thinking about the movie the master I, I i i get it i've decided i like it i've decided it was great it looked beautiful it captured a time uh, perfectly the shots were amazing there are two scenes in it that are the keys to the movie and I think basically is it a it's a film about an unrequited uh, male sexual relationship. It's a movie about the two sides of the masculine archetype or disposition, the carnal and the uh, mental. There's a lot of things going on, but I, I, as you can see, I'm slowly forming an opinion about it that is diplomatic, uh, pseudo intellectual, and uh, completely in progress w kamal bell kamal bell uh the guy who uh created the show the bell curve the guy who's got uh totally biased with uh, w kamal bell on the uh, fx network let's talk to him right now that fro is looking a little up <laughs> i just picked it out a little bit you picked it out the, i heard for the occasion for the occasion you got one of these uh, Afro yeah, rake? I have one of those. Yeah, it's right in my back pocket. Does it have the fist on it? It's got the, that's the only kind that you should have is the one with the fist on it. What are you talking about? <laughs> have those been continually made since the original fisted Afro picks? You know, they're probably shopped out to some cu country that would be sad to hear about. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're hard to find if you don't live in uh, the you know Harlem. Yeah. I uh, Kamal Bell is here. W. Kamal Bell, whose show is now on FX. Yes. We, Weekly uh, show. Yeah, it's weekly. We just we just wrapped up our first six, and it got ex you know we're doing a few more. How many more? Seven. You're doing seven more. So you did six. You're doing seven more. Yes, yes. So they have faith. 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess they have faith or they feel like it's a small enough bet that they can keep betting on it. So. Well, how's it going, man? Because I know this is the first time that this is a big thing. I mean, this is your first, uh, this is a big break. This is it. This is it. This is the big break that uh, you hear about that, yeah. I didn't, that I didn't actually believe happened. So, What do you mean? Well, you know, you know how that is. People think you have your big break and you go, well, yeah, but I've been doing all these things. And, you know, but this is actually like a huge, it's like an evolutionary jump in my career. Yeah, well, uh, well, I I remember I did the pilot with you. Yes, right here. And this was uh, and uh, how how did the whole opportunity unfold? Because you were doing the bell curve for a while. I saw it up in San Francisco. You're a known quantity. You're a comedian, a Bay Area comedian, respected <laughs> for his intelligence, yeah, and fearlessness. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's... you know, but you were you know you you got married, you had a kid. You were nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous well before I got married and had a kid. Let me be clear about that. Well, what I mean, but how did it? Uh, how did it unfold? And uh, when did Chris Rock get involved? What happened with that? Well, I was doing. I started my show in uh, October two thousand seven out of frustration with my stand up career because I felt like I wasn't able to cover the stuff in stand up that I wanted to cover. Like, what does that mean? Well, I, you know, I talk about race a lot in my act. And Can I, was, I talk about it now? Yeah, of course. Okay, go I, ahead. That's yeah. what we do. No, you, no. I, I Look, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to progress, man. You don't have to not talk to me about race because white people make you feel guilty about talking to black people about race. There you go. Can we, I'm going to put that on the promo. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've heard you say that and I'm like, you can talk to me about race. That's, that's what I do and that's what we do specifically. No, so. but I, but no, I don't, I'm not hung up on it. I don't know that you are. I'm just saying we can talk about well, it. Well, I wanted, I will talk about it, but I try, okay. I'm trying to ease into it because yeah. I, you know, there, you know, I get occasional angry emails from uh, progressives that are probably 19 or 20 years old <laughs> that honestly believe that we live in a post-racial world, which to them means do not address anyone as the other. We are all as one, and there's no reason why separate even in conversation the other. Which I find, uh, I, I have a hard time with it. Well, yeah, I think you should have a hard time with it. I think people, the, we have these categories, and they actually do, uh, you know, I'm not going to I'm not gonna sit across from a person who's like a trans person and act like there's not differences there. No, but obviously- And act like if we have a discussion about our experiences, I'm going to be sure that there's going to be some that aren't shared. That's right. So that's what yeah. it comes down to. It's, it's a, it's a, ta- it's a, it's a, uh, when you talk about experiences or, or where you come from or, or how you're defined or, or what struggles you went through, there's no way any individual as somebody who has chosen or not chosen uh, a, a life for themselves, yeah, but are, are considered different, yes. that they're not going to, I, I just don't, I guess after a certain point, uh, you don't talk about that because it would be weird. I mean, if you went into work all every day and someone said, "There's the black guy." Exactly. What's which, up, black guy? <laughs> which, which we all, every black person's probably had that job. That's which, true, right? Yeah, and which and somehow it is said, "There's the black guy." Maybe not in that way, but also like, "Hey, what's up with that BET, huh?" Yeah, right. <laughs> so. but, but obviously, you don't you know talk to transgender people and say like, "How's the beard coming in?" Or you know, or I, uh, there, did you... I believe there's a transgender person you can talk to like that, but you can't talk to them all like that. But, uh, right, you can't you can't open with that. You can't open with that. No, no. <laughs> all right, so you were having a hard time getting in your mind, <laughs> yeah, in your mind, or maybe in reality. I, you know, it's, it's it's definitely both. Because like I understand that idea. There there comes a point where you want to do a type of comedy. You want to do uh, your own. You want to honor your intelligence and honor you know how you want to do it and if you don't have if you're not known for that mm-hmm. you're going to stand in front of a room full of uh, of people that are like uh, expecting 
comedy period yes, yes. and you're, you're comedy Kamal Bell not, <laughs> not comedy yeah. period no yeah so you were banging your head against the wall but was your experiences where you were like it just wasn't getting over or did they take you too seriously or was it like oh he's gonna talk about this well I mean I feel like the it came to a head in uh when uh me and uh Kevin Avery another comedian uh went to Okinawa to do shows for the troops and I just was very aware, and the troops were great, this isn't about them, that I was not the comic who could just be sent to go talk to the troops. I, I never get asked, thank God, because I would be so paralyzed with a weird kind of fear. But ultimately, you adapt. You're like, what can I do? Well, yeah. What, what, what's the 10? How, many, how much time do you have to do? 15? Well, no, no, no. We were doing co-headlining, so we were doing 45, which means... Oh, boy. You know, so the first night, I went up and did 45 minutes to absolute, like, at first they were like, ha, ha, ha. Hmm. And then it was the politest silence I've ever heard because they're actually good. They're good kids. They're and they, troops. They're troops. And so they know they can't like just tell you suck because that's you know they're gonna get written up for that. Where were so you? Is Okinawa. There's so like, they were, it wasn't a war zone. They were no, kinda, no, no. They're, yeah. And that's the thing. They're kind of just bored because there's no reason for us to be in Okinawa, which it's, is a whole other thing. It's a holding <laughs> pen, though, right? Yeah, it's, I like, mean, it's a place to go just in case something goes down. So okay, so right, they're just on base. They're just on base. And they just want to be entertained. They just want to, and they deserve to be entertained. And they probably wanted magicians and or strippers, and I couldn't do either one of those things. Or, I don't blame me, them for that. Or a comic who could relate to them in a different way. Or just, and, yeah, just a clown or, yeah, or someone yeah. who doesn't do anything provocative. Yeah, I could think of a million, million comics. I can not a million. I can think of many comics I respect who would do a great job of that. Because your approach to race, you you are you know, uh, it's a dialogue about race. It's not a you you're not it's not a parade of stereotypes or 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 a show just for uh for for black people and uh, and the uncomfortable white people who like laughing at <laughs> the way black people do white people and yet i've been accused of all those things but yeah no i think i like to think of by it by who uh, the internet. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> you, know, you know random emails. Yeah. Anytime you're a black person talking about race in comedy setting, any white person can say you're stereotyping white people. And any uh, and any white person can also say because I've had the progressives like you're, the, the white people are laughing because they're afraid and I'm like I've never heard afraid laughter in my career <laughs> you know like people either laugh or don't laugh they don't you don't go far on afraid laughter is what a I mean, discomfort you know. laugher I, yeah, I think yeah. there's discomfort well there's but there's discomfort but that's a different that's you can't sustain a career on just discomfort laughter I think right the other comics have proven that <laughs> not me you yeah, know there, there have been a few people I well I, mean, I couldn't sustain a career that way I just so you know but anyway like I just felt like. And, you know, and I'll talk to you about this. I, the comics that I like are the comics who I felt like approached comedy like it was an adult conversation. Mm-hmm. And that means sometimes you're talking about high-minded things and sometimes you're talking about poop and it just sort of goes back and forth. You can talk about poop in a high-minded way. Exactly. Or you can just choose not to be high-minded and just talk about poop. Like, sure. whatever you want to do. And I felt like I, was, I wasn't I was getting my thing across in a comedy club because especially when you talk about race and you reference either things that happened to either you or... There's a thing in comedy club where on some level I feel like people think you're making it all up. Right. Like they don't. And so I felt like I needed a screen to cite my sources so I could do the bits. Right. And, you know, and I would, you know, certainly I took the from The Daily Show and like, yeah, I want to. I was like, I told myself I want to do my version of The Daily Show. Right. Which is it was a weekly show that we my solo show was like one point weekly and every week it was new. Right. And so that's how we got to the W. Kamau Bell curve. And that's. Doing that show for about three years is when I the one man show the one man show and it was great from the moment I first did it in San Francisco, my career changed from the first performance. Well, you felt better. 
I felt a lot better, even though it was a mess <laughs> the first time. But there were people coming yeah. specifically for an experience. It was not uh, a comedy club experience. It was a comedic performer doing something that had some structure. Yeah. Uh, it was provocative. You did it in Berkeley like a pussy. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was the time you saw it. I did it in Berkeley. I started in front of, and you know, and I did the thing where I, uh, where I, if you brought a friend of a different race, you got in two for one. There so you I would go. guarantee that it wouldn't just be white theater goers, which in San Francisco, if you do that, you're just going to get any theater thing automatically gets white theater goers. So but I no, I sure. remember seeing it. Was it Berkeley or Oakland? It was in, it was in Berkeley, but it felt like Oakland because there's a lot of black people there. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. You said I, that. Yeah, exactly. It was, <laughs> but it was a very uh, diverse crowd. Yeah, almost. And the theater itself looked like uh, you had to be diverse in order to go there. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, in order to get in, uh, they had to judge your tolerance level. Exactly. It yeah. Was a classic, it was a classic East Bay. It was La Pena, a classic, a cultural center. It wasn't even right, a right. A lot of murals, yes. working people. Uh, things were, you know, I think uh, you could get condoms when you walked into the theater. Yeah, there. Yes, I'm sure I was followed by. I'm sure I was followed by an open for by a spoken word of some yeah, sure, sort. Yeah, no, it was sure. it was that place. Well, I mean, how do you address this thing? Because I I can't think of anybody better to talk about it than you. Because it's sort of stuck in my craw that that you know when I get accused of of somebody who is, uh, I will I will not admit to to being. Uh, a racist of any kind i will admit to being insensitive but perhaps my insensitivity is something that needs to be educated as opposed to be condescended to by people who claim that uh, we're in some sort of post-racial universe whatever the fuck that means well first of all that the post-racial thing is totally nonsense and didn't exist and, and anybody who's still talking about that this far into obama's presidency is clearly not paying attention so uh-huh. i mean that's just I, nobody i mean even when i talk about it my acts in my it's an ideal show, though but it's, an, I, it's not it, an ideal, though. Nobody. I don't what, want what that. Is it, what does it mean? That would be like saying we don't want to recognize the differences in height or the differences in like eye color. It's all part of the stew that is humanity. But that, well, that was that's always been my point: is that if somebody has a different cultural uh, background or or they come from something that it, because different cultures and I, and I'm not talking about uh, black culture, but on some level I am, is that we all live in America. Yes, we're all Americans, and in the 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 fabric is diverse but people you who have communities of a certain ilk uh, have different uh, ways of uh, going ba- about life yes yeah. they're still american but to me it's sort of like i don't live there and i you know i i'm sure i could walk through maybe have some food and look at some interesting stores <laughs> but i'm still not going to know what happens when you go home well you're so, talking about your neighborhood right now right <laughs> yeah so yeah. the argument is it's like well it, when someone says you know that's being racially insensitive or racist i'm like how about it's being fucking curious like what are you sort of saying that like well you need to go knock on some doors or befri- is it more condescending and racist to tell me that i need to have more uh indian friends or latino <laughs> friends or black friends because not having those friends makes me somehow racially insensitive or how about just acknowledging that i don't spend time with a lot of people but that doesn't mean that i don't want to know does that make me somehow insensitive? Well, I'm willing to guess that the people who tell you you need to go make those friends aren't those people. Yeah. I would imagine that, like, you know, I think that the whole thing is that for, this is the show I talk about this, that the pendulum in this country has been swung so far that white pe- people think that white is the absence of culture and race. Mm-hmm. And they think that uh, that the other, like, well, I, I, I'm not anything. I'm just an American. Or I'm not, I don't really have, know what I am. And really, I feel like what it comes down to is that if white people thought about their whiteness more, it would make interacting with others in a. It would it would it would change the way in which they interact with other people because I don't think white people think about their whiteness enough in this country. 
And so that when people, so when the news says white people, blah, 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 every white person goes, that's not me. I'm not white people. Right. Whereas when black, when the news says black people, blah, 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 I go, even if I don't relate to that, I know that's me. I have okay. to, I have right. to accept some responsibility for that. Or I have to choose not to, but I can't act like I'm not involved in it. And I feel like a lot of times white people act like they're not involved in the race discussion in any way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I, when I think about my whiteness, I, you know, I come from, uh, you know, Eastern European Jewish, uh, working people a few generations back. I, I, you know, I, I know I culturally, culturally identify as a Jew, but, uh, I, I just don't take that much offense to any of it. You know, if someone you know, pigeonholes me as like, well, you're kind of Jewy or whatever, or that you're too white or too this, I'm like, well, I don't even know what that fucking means. Really. But you've probably been—I would imagine you've been in situations where you felt like your 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 Jewiness <laughs> that has been like, uh oh, right, here we go. Sure, I and mean, I think I, that that's probably happened to you more than your whiteness has made you do that. But the weird thing, is, no, that's true. But the weird thing about that is, is generally, usually, what you're dealing with is somebody who has no experience of it. Yeah. They don't, it's not, that That was what pissed me off the most about the last email I got from this w- woman, um, who I think is- Is that why I'm here? Because you got an angry email. I thought we booked this before the email. <laughs> okay. From an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Can I still use the word women? Or are we, are we- Yeah, post, you can use women. Are we post-gender yet? Not yet. We're, go, we're going there. We're going there. It's it's coming. That's what I want to, that's why I feel like America doesn't, get over the gay thing, because post-gender is coming. Right. But uh, but it was just this sort of thing like, you know, take a, a gender studies class, take a, a something class. You know what? It's so fucking horrendous and condescending. And I got angry because it, but the, but I did think, like, is there a generation? How old are you? I'm 39. So is there a generation of 20 year olds uh, now? Yeah, that that honestly, because I mean, there's that's several generations away. It's another generation away from whatever you and I came from, and we're mm-hmm. already a few generations away mm-hmm. from whatever you know we're identified as, you mm-hmm. know, Jewish, black. But what my question is: Am I missing something? Are there a bunch of fifteen-year-olds now that really don't see color lines? That really don't? You know, I, I imagine there probably is, but I, I, that ain't me. I'm an old man. Don't yell at me. Well, I think help it, me out. Well, I think in urban environments there are a bunch of fifteen-year-olds who see who don't see race in that same way. But in in non urban environments, there are a bunch of fifteen year olds who who see race in a different way. But those things are still clashing. You know, there's. I feel like every time people say we're like, the there's people in this country who are filled with fear and they're raising kids. There's people in this country who aren't filled with fear and they're raising kids. And their kids are obviously going to be more progressive. Are going to be more. You know how do I put this? Like those kids are still being raised by the parents who are who are running stuff right now. You know what I mean? So I feel like yes, if I'm in Brooklyn, there's a bunch of black kids on skateboards with tattoos like with their hair sprayed up in goth bands who are like yeah i just sort of do whatever i do but then if you go to alabama there's white kids who who feel very like or not even i'll go you go outside of san francisco 40 miles outside of san francisco there are white people who feel like they're in texas you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and so i feel like it's we we in the urban environments overshoot that a lot because we think because well in my neighborhood or where i live it's not that way but yeah there's a lot more of america that's the other way yeah i i don't know i i just get i i get weirded out by it but we don't need to get hung up on that. So, so all right. So you're doing your show. How does Chris Rock get involved in this process? Chris Rock gets involved. He, um, I, I had done the show here at the Comedy Central stage in L.A. and uh, a writer named Chuck Sklar came out and saw the show. Uh, I started with Chuck Sklar. Yes, yes. He, we uh, talk about you regularly. <laughs> You've mentioned him on this before. Sure. Uh, so Chuck comes out and sees it because he got a recommendation from. Guy named Kevin Kataoka. Chuck comes and sees it. Friend of ours, Kevin yes. Kataoka. Yeah, great comic. Who I, who I do not see as an other. <laughs> I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that Kevin wants to be seen as an other. So that's probably fine. Uh, 
Although he did express pride recently about PS, PSY, that Korean uh, star. Anyway, but... Uh, no, but he, but he doesn't want to be seen as another yet. You know, he used to, most of his act used to be his dad. <laughs> and it, wasn't, it wasn't general dad. It was my Korean dad. Yeah, but every, you know, but we all, a lot of comics talk about their dad and your dad is But the dad. truth of the matter is we are all others. Yes, we're yes. all Americans. We're all people. But, you know, on some level, uh, you know, if I'm coming from a, a certain experience, I mean, this, but this might be the argument where, where, um... Like if a if a, a general white guy yeah. was to to sort of explore his whiteness, which is something you said would be interesting, that would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I you know I'm fortunate enough to be Jewish, and I can you know lean on that. Yeah. But like I think in a general way, you know, white people don't identify ethnically. Well, they don't. And like for, I'm married, my wife is white, but I realized from being with her that she's actually her her ethnic identity is is a Italian Catholic. Even though she's a very small portion of herself as Italian, but she grew up in Italian. Her grandfather's a hundred percent Sicilian. She grew up in an Italian family. All the food, all the talking, all the co- so she had. I realized, oh, that's her ethnicity is Italian Catholic. Well, what's been your experience with uh, with that? I mean, was it what, initially? What, what was the resistance? Was there any pushback? I mean, I you know I felt like is that an her, inappropriate question? <laughs> no, it's not an inappropriate. It's a question I get a lot from her family. Uh, <laughs> what's your experience here? Uh, no, we're great. I mean, it's like first of all, the dynamic of somebody dating so like your daughter is always going to be a screwed up thing, no matter how alike you are on sure. the surface. So I think that's let's just start with there. I think also the fact I think her family was way more alerted to the fact that I was a comedian. A, an unsuccessful comedian in their eyes and my eyes than I was that I was black. Right. Now, certainly, there's other aspects of the family where, like other people in the family, where I'm sort of in things like going, like I would look around and be like, I'm the only black person here at these big family gatherings and I can't help but think about that because that's where I come from. Right. It doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily affect what I do, but it can't help but be this thing that I'm sort of dealing with. And there was times where things would happen where I would be like, is this because I'm black? Yeah. Or is this because I'm me? <laughs> you know? And I think that's a burden that the other carries a lot, not being able to figure out what's happening. Now, nothing happened to the family where I got kicked out or yelled at, get your black. You know, uh, you know, at the time I had really long dreadlocks, and I think that had a lot to do with it. Like, I just looked, I didn't, if I had been a black lawyer, yeah. I think it would have been different. <laughs> you know, like, but I was a black <laughs> comedian with long dreadlocks who was older than their daughter, uh-huh. and it was like, what is this dude? This is not the dude we ordered. Yeah, you know? yeah. Black was just, was maybe on the list somewhere but it was not the top of the list well that's good yeah no that, it's great. that's progress that is progress <laughs> now on the other hand i couldn't sit down with their family and be like let's talk about my blackness i don't yeah. think they would have any time for that i'm just wondering where do the lines of you being offended by me and my blackness they're not but they're not that family in general so you know well the, but but that's interesting because i think that that attitude would would be something that uh a lot of people would bring to it without saying it now, what do you mean that well, I think that, you know, identifying yourself and knowing that in your own discomfort, yeah. that, you know, that reads. Like, if you're yes, sitting there yes. thinking, you know, like, um, you know, I wonder what they think about my blackness. Yes. I wonder, yes. you know, no. that would create a defensiveness. It does create a defensiveness, but it's like, and, and that's happening throughout society about things that aren't race. Like, right. my, what I'm bringing to and what you're bringing to, right. and suddenly we're sitting here and it's right. like, we think, oh, this guy is doing this to me. So I, and I feel like as an other, you can sort of, a lot of times we're carrying all this homework that, that yeah, we've been yeah. given by, like, I got to figure out how to get through the situation that when you are, for lack of a better word, white, yeah. <laughs> that you just sort of walk in and go, this guy's treating me like an asshole because he's an asshole. Right. And you don't have to sort of wander through, like, right, is this right. a racist thing happening? Yeah, yeah. And it's just a lot of, I think it happens to women all the time, certainly sure. happens to gay people, that yeah. it's a lot of extra stuff to carry. It happens to Jewish people. Yeah. You know, that it's extra stuff to carry that can make complicated situations more complicated. That yeah. Even if I've been a 
a, even if I'd been a white lawyer, it still would have been complicated to date to to marry somebody's daughter. Sure, you know? sure. I don't, and believe me, I'm not. Uh, I'm not waving around any Jewish card. You know, like <laughs> our struggles for the most part in this country are are over. I, I you can, won. Yeah, I can honestly say somehow or another. You know, we. You know, yeah, it's been a few decades, but yeah. you know, we we seem to have integrated okay. Yes. No. Good job. Good Thank job. you very much. It's you know that integration thing is easy when uh, when you white. Yeah, when you can blend in. <laughs> when you can blend into a crowd. And honestly, that's why I think black people are always going to be in this position in this country because we're yeah. never. Ever. Even Latinos can check white on the census, and you can meet some Latinos. And be like, I had no idea you were because it just it depends on what part of the country sure. you're from. So, yeah. so okay, so so Chuck Squire, uh, he's the he, show, he, and recommended by Kevin Kataoka. Chuck Squire, Jew. Why not? Let's mix it up. Yeah, yeah. let's keep this theme going. <laughs> uh, so at this uh, at the at the Comedy Central stage at yeah. the Hudson, yeah, the, right, yeah, at the Hudson, and, and Chris. Uh, and at that, like, that was probably, at that point, he was like, he called me the next day, and I had met him because he had tried to hire me for something else, so he called me the next day and was like, you're going to get a TV show. And at the time, I'm living in the barrier. That's what like, he said? That's what he said. He, like, yeah, like, it very much, and at the time, I'm living in the barrier, like, okay, whatever, this is why I don't live in L.A., because people like you t- saying nonsense. Right. And uh, I said, okay, thanks, man, you know, <laughs> and we, whatever, I came back down here a couple times, and then he said he had told Chris about me, and that Chris thought I was funny. But I feel like when I tell that story, so, oh, so you you didn't know Chuck had talked to Chris? No, I didn't know Chuck oh, right. talked to Chris. I just he just said I told Chris about you because he works with Chris. He's working yeah, with Chris yeah. on his Chris Rock show, and and when I tell the story, it sounds like oh, that must have been an exciting moment. But really, in your career, there's all these different you know this. There's all you have all these different pots going. And I had the solo show, and I had stand up, and I was trying to work on a book thing, and so I was touring with Laugh Against the Machine. It was okay. That's one thing. That's okay. Chris Rock thinks I'm funny. That's the most exciting thing out of all these pots. I'm self generating the heat for. Yes, yes. This yes. actually, this might be a guy that can cook this shit. But I also know Chris Rock has his own career, and is in. And at that point, I didn't think he was looking to do anything with any. Right. You know, I thought the best. I thought maybe one day I can open for Chris Rock. Right. Like that's right. sort of like right. I thought that'll be yay. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so we, we talk, you know, that would just sort of kept going. And then October, 2010, I was in, um, New York, the UCB theater and I did my solo show and it was a great night. It was really good. And I walked backstage and suddenly, you know, Chris walks backstage at the yeah. end of the show with, and you know, and and I didn't know he had been there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that was great. It was, it was great. That's I mean, the you know, best way that can happen. That is the best. I think he know Chris is very aware of his uh, like like Jedi status. Yeah. That, you know that he's got to use it very. That if he had walked in and waved to everybody, that the whole thing would have been over. Right. So right. he came in. After was he wearing started, a hat? He was wearing a hat, and he was literally dressed in all black, like it was the Matrix. Like right. it was just he was just sort of head down, wearing all black, and right. he had his glasses on. You know? Yeah. You know, so, so that's a, that was sweet of him not to you know come backstage. It's always good to know. It's always uh, when there are Jedi's in the room, they should always identify themselves later. That yes. is the Jedi thing to do. That is the Jedi thing to do. And he's very <laughs> much aware. He fought hard for his Jedi status, yeah. so he's, he knows how to use it. Yeah, and uh, and I've seen him use it several times now. But and so he just came back, and it was very much like, "Hey, you're funny." Yeah. Like it wasn't like I have finally found the one. I'm going. He was like, "You're funny. Where do you live?" I said, "San Francisco." He said, "Move." Yeah. <laughs> and my wife was pregnant at the time. I was like, yeah, "I don't think I'm moving anytime yeah. soon." But he's like, "You got to go to the either New York or L.A. and get to you're funny." He's like, "I don't think a lot of people are funny, so mm-hmm. take that for what it means." And then he left. Yeah. Chris disappeared, and I went about living my life. And then two months later, I got a phone call from an unlisted number, and it was like, uh, and I thought it was my dad because weirdly my dad has an unlisted number. Yeah. And uh, I said hello, and it said, "Kamau." Yeah, it's Chris Rock. 
And I, you know, I, I said, no, it's not, because I, I, I told all my friends, and I was just like, this is Jeremy being an asshole. Yeah. And it was, and he started going off, and very quickly, I was like, oh, this is Chris Rock. Right. And he said, I want to do a show with you. And I don't know what that means. I didn't know what it meant. And I was just like, all right, let's, what does that mean? And so yeah. it was, he went to Broadway. I was started like, like I, I really, I, I flew out to New York to meet with him and Chuck. We talked in, over an afternoon at his office. At that point, I flew back to the Bay Area. Nothing happened right away, and I kind of thought I would fucked it up. <laughs> like, I was like, did I not do enough in that meeting? Yeah. It was really like we sat for six hours in his office and sort of bullshitted, and I was just like, and it was over, and I kept thinking we were about to do something, and then I went home like, wait, I just fucked it up. Yeah. I didn't. Right. That's do- the worst feeling. It's yeah. like you're second-guessing something that you have no idea about, and all it is is just sort of an, a heightened way to beat the shit out of yourself yes. for nothing. Yes. It's like, did I say that wrong? Yes. That did- sentence, should I have said that differently? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Horrendous. I, I did a lot of that, yeah. and then came back home, and then he went to Broadway, and my wife had a, my wife had our baby, and so there was just this long process of nothing happening, and then after I came out of the baby haze, uh, I called Chuck. I was like, we need to produce some sort of pilot in San Francisco to show Chris yeah. that this is actually a thing and yeah. I know how to do this. So we did two nights at the theater in San Francisco at Stageworks yeah. Theater and then showed it to Chris and he's like, okay, I see it. And that's when he put in money for the thing we did in November. Where you we self-produced the pilot? Yeah. I mean, I you know, in San Francisco, like you said, I know a lot of people. I've been there for a while. I called in a lot of favors. And, and shot and, some stuff. And just shot some stuff. It didn't look great, but we just, you know, we did two nights and shot some stuff to show him what the idea was mm-hmm. and it didn't look good but mm-hmm. it had a lot of spirit in it mm-hmm. and uh he recognized that and said okay i can see it now and it was based on my solo show but just with more parts to it like it right. was me in front of a screen but then also we had different comedians as correspondents i interviewed uh somebody live and st- live at the theater and just sort of shot some man on the street stuff and put it together so a lot like the chris rock show yeah, I mean the the Chris Rock show and the Daily Show were probably my two biggest models for this thing. Right. So, but I certainly know that I'm different than both those dudes, so I'm going to do it differently. So, what you know, in your mind, what is that point of view difference for you? Uh, I think I, as a comedian, I'm a generation younger than than yeah. them. I feel like I so I I I think about I was you know I think about comedy in different ways, and I think I because I lived in San Francisco for 15 years. I'm really steeped in this sort of idea as the it's 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 not only okay to be an other it's great to be an other and let's get over this bullshit and get to whatever the next problem is. Right. Like sort of like and I and I like ce- like celebrating and sort of aggressively pushing the other and not just from the the thing that San Francisco did to me I don't just push it from the black perspective. In my solo show I was talking about race, but I want I'm trying to push it from as many different perspectives as possible to sort of show that like all of this shit is normal. You know, right. There we, is no other. Yeah. That we, that, or it's all is, it's, it, you know, there's no reason to be afraid of any of it. You right. Know? It's, it's like, it's a discussion that should be trivial. Like it should be, uh, like second burner stuff. Yes. 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 Well, yeah. yeah. It's kind of the thing. And I'd be other, like, do I like you? Yeah. You know, like not in my, and I believe me, I went to San Francisco. I was, a, I was as much, I'd come from Chicago and, Chicago is a great city, but it's certainly a city of segregation even to this day. So I had not been around as many different types of people as when I got to the Bay Area and got steeped in it and sort of felt like sort of it's my responsibility to push this stuff forward. It's interesting because you're making me think about something because I've always um, had this weird uh, feeling about San Francisco. Like I, I I lived up there for a couple of years, but I could never get a handle on it. And I knew innately... And also from living there, that it was a place where people were, that was really driven culturally by a celebration of individuality, whatever that might be. Whether it be, um, 
you know, sexual or racial or or, or creative, whatever it is. Yeah. But it always had that feeling. And to me, that felt sort of, it always felt sort of boundaryless to me, mm-hmm. which is ultimately what you're working for. But it, it also makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> like, you know, like there, I think there's some comfort, you know, and I think that in, in the way we pigeonhole ourselves, does that make sense? That like um, the gay community in San Francisco fought, you know, long and hard, and and that's sort of a capital that mm-hmm. New York of of their that's the territory that they made for themselves. Yes, yes. and it was not easy, and it took a, a very aggressive, uh, I, I, I guess a an aggressive celebration. Yes, of of all things gay. <laughs> for them Some would say to, marches so, and riots, but yes, yes, <laughs> but yes, an aggressive <laughs> celebration. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but that I think that is a good way to look at it. Is that condescending or is it trivializing? But but for me, it was sort of like it it kind of called me to the carpet. In that, like you know, what? Why are you uncomfortable with this? You know, with this this territory that has been achieved. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, uh, maybe I maybe I don't know what I am. You, you know <laughs> that like what? Why? Like it's it's a lot better in my brain that you know we can have a conversation about about race because like in my mind it's like well we got to be talking about this because yeah. look at us <laughs> <laughs> and really look at us because what that what we are on the surface is a lot of times connected to who we are inside right doesn't mean we're exactly just because you see a black guy doesn't mean he does all the things that no, you I'll think be, like no. but i think it's a, it there's a connection there in the same way that i'm also six foot four a lot of who i am is based on the fact that i'm tall yeah. you know it's just not as politically loaded now, uh, as black uh, uh, right now are you just being diplomatic so i don't look racist <laughs> no i don't think so i think okay. this kind of conversation i feel like is supposed to happen a lot especially at this point in america where we're supposed to have these conversations when we're not actually charged about something and where you can make some where you can maybe make some mistakes at a point where i don't have anything in the, on the line that i'm like waiting for you to make a mistake well, I, well the weird thing is and i you know I, I don't know if i talked to you th- about this before but but i think um and, and this might this might go either way. I think when I really tr- try to ask myself why 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 am I you know asking these questions or why do I feel this way and what what is racially charged for me and and all it comes down to is I in on some level am envious of the built in identity. Like you know I, if I feel like an other, it's only because like I'm you know weird and I'm shy and I'm too angry and I can't seem to socialize too easily for very long. I'm I'm bad at relationships, so my otherness is really limited to my inabilities emotionally and psychologically. You know, moving through the world, it's not it's not because I'm <laughs> I'm white, but and I think in a lot of ways that even with the gay community and the black community and the Latino community, there's part of me that thinks like they know who they are. Well, yeah, I think it's, well in this country, especially we. I'll I'll speak for all three of those groups, which is the first time I've ever done that. Okay, we know who are, we are because on some level we've been marginalized, and I feel like this. I'll speak for myself on this. I was made to feel like black was a bad thing for the first, you know, for the first part of my life. Right, and so at some point I had to reckon with that, and then decide how I was going to make it a great thing. Right, and so that's what I did. Was like, and so the, my version of blackness is not the version of blackness of most of most black men my age. But it's the version of blackness I feel like I can uh, get down in and celebrate. But but wait a minute. So like marginalization, I understand. So that yeah. that you know, if you're going to frame it historically that way, if you're going to say black is a bad thing, eventually the good the other side of that is black pride. But right, but, the black power. Movement. No, I get that. Yeah. But obviously, you know that marginalization, you know, politically was intentional. Mm-hmm. That there, there's no question that that the political culture was certainly racist and and not tolerant and and off in 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 many ways. I would say absolutely controlled minorities so they would be held back. 
and fra- and fractured groups, you know, in such a way so that it, would, it was harder to even get together. Absolutely, yeah. but but because of that, and maybe not because of that. See, this is my question because you know we have Armenians down the street here, mm-hmm. and we, and and I also know this about the Jews. Now they came here in a different way. They were mm-hmm. not bound yes. <laughs> and put on boats. Yes, yes. They got on boats voluntarily. Yes, yes. and there seemed they, to be they, a, pay, they paid their fare. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> you had to choose what class they sat in. <laughs> they got to say they got to send meals back. No, no. Right. Could you? Yeah. Well, they, well, they, they, there, there was steerage, but it was not you know forced steerage. Yes, or, or, yes. And they w- didn't. And have when you to... got off the boat, you could go wherever you wanted right, to. Right. Pretty, pretty <laughs> yeah. much. Once yeah. once you yeah. went through the island, and yeah. they deloused you. Yes. But, certainly. Uh, certainly. You know that there's a lot of people got here through bad ways, but yes, slavery has its own. Uh, no, that baggage is oh, yes, it's, yeah. it's clearly nothing that yeah. I'm, I'm trivializing. Yeah. But but but, and I just don't want to make sure anybody else's baggage is their own baggage too. So. No, but I get that. But like what what I see even with Armenians is that when uh, a, a group of people comes from another country of another ethnicity that it, and and when they build their community, you know they they are not necessarily marginalized. Okay, the the, the Armenians. Let's just mm-hmm. stick with them. You know, mm-hmm. clearly they've got their own shit. You mm-hmm. know, behind them, and I'm not going to trivialize that. I don't even understand what it was <laughs> historically. But it was yeah. bad, and, yeah. the, and the Turks were involved. Yes, but but nonetheless, when they come here, they they may have money, they may be middle class, but they're not marginalized per se. But they do create a community, mm-hmm. you know, within the fabric of of America, within the fabric of the city, that is clearly exclusionary on some level, mm-hmm. because they're like, well, we're going to hang with our own, we're going to speak our own language, mm-hmm. and we're going to do that. Hasidic Jews do it. Uh, I think Latinos do it. Yeah. And and even if they're not marginalized, there's a community and a sense of of, of national identity that, that isn't necessarily homegrown American stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I think I'm just playing off of that, that when you, when the, even with the black community, that obviously struggled in a different way that there is a community mm-hmm. and that i don't know that being a, a sort of you know generally uh considered a white person you know that sense of community is not the same well but i think that you're i think white people uh like yourself are shortchanging your community yeah it, everybody has a community and every and like you say i hear you talk about this on the show all the time when you go to the south there's a totally different type of thing and in my mind yeah there's a totally different type of white people in the south than there is in new york or la right and that's a community you know what i mean and and white people in the south and my dad's from alabama and i spend a, i go to alabama every year and hang out there you can feel the community and there's pride in the community and sometimes that comes with the confederate flag but not all the time but there's a sense of we are this thing and we define ourselves through our community that just i think starts to not happen so much in urban environments as people absolutely first so absolutely i think that white people a lot of times like my wife's family i don't think they would define their ethnicity ethnicity as uh italian catholic i'm defining it because i can see it from the outside and go you don't see how important those two things are to this right that even though you don't go to church every sunday and you're only and this is only one eighth italian that you're italian catholics <laughs> american right. italian catholics you right. know and so i feel like a lot of times white people because they see it's so easy to go through a Latin a Latin neighborhood and go. This is look at the flags and I don't recognize the names on the things. That's a thing, and it's not as easy to go through your own community and see that way, right? You know. So I just think that white people are, are shortchanging themselves. You know, have some white pride, as I say. <laughs> Be careful with that. It's <laughs> a small jump from white pride to white power. Yeah, but that's why I feel like white white pride has been. I talked about this in my show. White pride has been sort of has been taken by the by bad white people. Mm-hmm. There's got to be good things to be proud about when you're white. There's got to be. It just there's just the same way. There's a black nationalism that is the uh, get some guns and and start taking out some white fools. And then there's the black nationalism is like get a f- afro pig with a fist on it. Yeah, you know like that. That's that it. literally makes me feel better to be black. It's, you know, it's by degree. It's by degree yeah. and direct. 
direction? <laughs> Which way are you pointing that fist? Well, I met your mom a couple times, and she like, what were you? What did your parents do? Uh, my mom, because she's in Indiana. She's in Indiana. She she's always. I mean, most for most of my life, she's been a self employed educator. Like she right. will teach and do things like that. But she also she published her own books of famous black quotations in the eighties, self published. Uh, just because she felt like there was no she there was no books of African American quotations, and she felt like that was a hole in the market that she always wanted that and so she made them herself and i always tell this story self-publishing in the 80s meant a thing that it doesn't mean now (laughs) you had had to have a mimeograph machine exactly well you also had to go to a typesetter you had to go meet somebody that is now that's microsoft word now you had to go right oh yeah you had it right they had to go offset press yeah yeah and so it was like eight different jobs that don't exist anymore yeah she was driving all over boston the boston area to put this thing together and now that's uh, a segregated city. Yes, yes, yes. Even you, you lived in Boston. I did live in Boston. I went to school in Boston as a kid. I was pretty young, but we were. I remember my time in Boston. That's a very bizarre bit of business and, there. And my mom felt like it's a segregated city, even so much as a black person moving to Boston. The black people of Boston were like, Mm-mm, "We're Boston blacks," <laughs> you know. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> don't bring that out of town black in here because they're so segregated from the white people. They have to again. They have to take pride in that thing. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, no, we 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 fought hard. <laughs> exactly. We were the first slaves in this country <laughs> slow down slow down you know so yeah so we uh, that's that's my mom just always a self-starter like uh she was she was working her phd at stanford in the 70s but she dropped out of the program because they didn't believe african-american literature was a valid field of study at that point at stanford at stanford <laughs> yeah so she dropped out of the program so she's a totally self-made person on that end and my parents were never together in my lifetime yeah uh my dad is from alabama mostly has lived in alabama but is Sort of worked his way up through, uh, uh, like, it was the guy who was like, you know, basically at one point in his life, was like, I don't have a job. <laughs> like, I'm, I don't have anything I do. I had been an artist and a photographer, went to the bank, became a teller, worked his way all the way up through the bank, then started selling insurance, and now uh, is retiring from a Fortune 500 reinsurance company, which is a whole separate level of insurance scam. Yeah. The people who insure insurance. Really? Yeah. That's like double evil. Exactly. <laughs> and I tell my dad that all the time. Uh, people but, who insure insurance yeah, companies. Yeah, the people who pay. When insurance pays out, there's people who pay them. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. That's bizarre. Where does that end? I don't know where it ends, but it's like <laughs> it, the money is so huge. Like He's like, uh, that Japanese thing cost my country, my company $4 billion or something. <laughs> like, you know, I get it. I yeah. get it. So they're, they're hedging their bets on, on, on the effectiveness of an insurance company not to have to pay out. Yes. So they charge an insurance company an exorbitant fee to insure them in hopes that they're a good insurance company and give people nothing that they deserve. Yes. And then when, God forbid, a class action suit goes through and actually rewards the person who was probably truly injured and all the insurance company's lawyers could not uh, you know, stop that from mm-hmm. happening, they're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy got was, what was due him, and now yeah. we got to pay the fucking bill on the insurance company. And yet it's still working out for them. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, so, I, and you know, and I said as my dad is the guy, like, who... You know, he's again. He's a black guy doing this. There's not a lot of black guys in the reinsurance industry. And he just found his way there. He just sort of weird thing. Like went back to college when he was in his 40s to get his uh, to get his degree so he could be promoted through all these things. And you know, both my parents on paper don't have a lot, but they both have like in separate ways worked hard to get the you know sort of 
I'm going to do this. How they feel about what you're doing, and uh, there, is, there, is your dad proud? Does he give you, you know, some once, respect? Once you get a show on FX that's produced by Chris Rock, your dad <laughs> finds out that's a way to bring closeness together with you and your dad. I mean, oh sure, you I'm, did something. Yeah, I mean, my dad. He, I always said the biggest laugh I ever got from him was telling him I had tried stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Like that was he was just like it didn't make any sense. Of, I, he never saw me as being funny at all in any way. So. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. No. You? Just, me? Yeah. I know. What a crazy. Yeah. 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 Even comedy. But was that his response? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he just didn't even. He felt. Like, I felt like he had never heard me speak out loud before. I didn't uh-huh. even know you talked. Uh-huh. <laughs> like what in front of people? Because uh, I was an only child and sort of off to my own devices most of the time. And so, but my mom, like you know, I could have said, you know, there's, I could have said any number of things. She's like, "Sounds good, let's do that." <laughs> you know, like she was that mom. You know, well, I think you're a guy. You know, not not unlike myself, that was probably you know sensitive and you know in his head a lot, and then uh, you know at some point. Like there, you know, I always knew I was naturally funny, and I'm sure you did too. But you had to find your way there. Yeah, like you know, we're thinky. So, yes, yes. So you know, we had to, you know, we we had we had to suffer through the fact that, like, well, I I, I want to say this. Yes, yes. It, it it can't all just be just funny. I mean, yeah. like, I don't know that I was naturally funny. Uh, until recently, like, I, like you know, I knew that I was propelled by anger and that and creativity and a way of saying things. But I don't know. I I don't know if I knew how to integrate my sort of my natural sensibilities of just being, you know, kind of funny yeah. and, and lighthearted until like the last few years. Well, I you know, I think it was always like I got something to say and I need you to listen. Well, I think that's yeah, I think that's true of me too. That I felt like I know I can be funny. I just don't know how to get it out. And it took me like sort of going the route of the solo show to figure out how to get it out. That made me a better stand up because I was just like, I'm not gonna listen. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. Pre- I'm gonna just perform for me. The, the whole idea behind the show was like, what would I do if I was famous? Yeah, and that's how I wrote the show. Yeah. I'm just gonna perform for me. And if that doesn't work, then I'll know that I can't figure this out. Because I always felt like, until this day, feel like a, you know, like don't fit exactly in the whole stand-up comedy. I love it, but I just feel like a lot of times, like I look at other comics, like ah, it's weird that we have the same job title. Well, you know, I I have felt that myself, and I I, I think you're probably going to uh, evolve out of that. I hope so. <laughs> Does that mean evolve out of stand-up comedy or evolve out of the, the no, insecurity? I, I think that that what I, from my own experience, that that is what that is. It's yeah. insecurity. Is yeah. that you? You know, I don't know that I saw myself as an entertainer per se mm-hmm. uh, ever. I, I felt like that my my intentions in getting into stand-up comedy were more about having uh, an outlet to speak. Uh, and be listened to and be seen. Like, I don't know. I knew I wanted to be a great comic, but I don't think that initially I, I saw myself as an entertainer. Well, I th- you know, I think th- there's a little bit of difference between us and that is that when I got into comedy, I, I did want to be a comedian, and I felt like there's a lot of, and I've seen this happen to friends of mine, where the act of doing stand-up comedy over and over again ends up shaping how you be a comedian. Like, for example, you know, I feel like, that the like when I would do stand up when I started I would talk about race and I would not talk about race and I felt like whenever I talked about race the crowd would react to me in a way that I thought well, that's weird why are they why aren't they going but, but, with this? but what I'm saying is that when you when you were approaching a stage yes. was it ever part of your thinking that like now I'm going to entertain these people <laughs> yeah I don't think I thought like I, I, yeah, yeah right old school show business it's not even it's not even that old school necessarily it's just it is you're an entertainer yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's hard to sort of, like because especially if you're, depending on who your heroes are, yeah. you know whether whether they're you know if they're if they're Bill Hicks or Lenny Bruce or George Carlin or Pryor yeah. or whoever. You know, the bottom line is 
is that those guys were in fucking show business. Yes, yeah. And yeah. and whether they ended up, however they ended up where they were, whatever whatever level yeah. that they ended up at, they were entertainers. Yes. That's the weirdest part about it is that at some point, you know, between Lenny and Bill Hicks, you know, that usually is, and, and prior to a certain degree, but, there, but there's no doubt that even prior at, at, at his finest and at his best was a top-notch entertainer. There's no arguing that. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, uh, he might have you know fought the fight and you know said fuck comedy, fuck who I was. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, now I'm gonna speak as myself. But he was an entertainer, yeah. and and I think Lenny Bruce too was that way. And then Hicks, you know, he throws a wrench in it. He's like, you know, <laughs> like I'm not sure that he would ever consider himself. But I think he did. Well, yeah, he but I think that, also we, we, the Hicks story sort of ended way early. Who knows what forty year old Hicks would have? No, looked but like. I think yeah. he said, "Don't worry, we'll get to the Dick Joe soon. We're gonna yes, land on Dick yeah. Joe." He, he was clear of the, yeah. the parameters, and he chose the parameters. And I think when you like, I went through what you went through with certain one man shows. Like they're not getting it. They're yeah. not getting me yeah. because I'm doing something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not entertaining properly. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't figured out how to say what you want to say as yeah. an entertainer. Well, I would say that that's true. I hadn't figured out what I wanted to say, what I w- wanted to say, and I need. Needed the, I needed the echo chamber of a theater to figure that out, and yeah. I felt and, like, the, and also the supportiveness, yeah, the uh, of well, the, the, curi- the and the curiosity of a theater audience that they will sort of sit there and be like, so explain, I'm here, right, hey, yeah, right. It, that, no, they, it, they, it's they, not just like Robert Hawkins says, is that you know, you, you we sell drinks, yes, yes, you, yes. you took that out of the equation, yeah. I was just like, let me just take that out of that, so right. I can see where I land up, and I certainly became a better stand-up comic because of that. Like, like you know, the stuff that I do now, that is all. The, sh- the spine of the show is always in me now is better because I went out of, because I went to the echo chamber of a theater you know so I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't I wouldn't be here right now if I just stayed in the clubs and I still you know I still love the clubs but it's just a it's a different thing yeah yeah it's like uh, you know trench warfare in a lot of ways yeah but I, I think as time goes on and you, and you more people come to see like it seems to me that some guys are trying to they just want to avoid the clubs altogether mm. you know like if they can just make the jump to uh, you know small theaters and you, you know I don't no, know. Well, the thing I love, no, the thing I love about a comedy club is it is kind of like it's you. You're just sort of it's like the idea. It is sort of like just Lord of the Flies. Like it's just sort of you don't know what's going to happen, and whatever happens is what happens, and you just sort of go into it and you sort of wrestle it out with the audience, and you come out, yay, we had a good time, and that that and that's fun. It's sort of like I feel like it's it's. That's its own fun, you know, right. whereas the doing the solo show and doing the TV show is a different type of thing. It's just a different animal, <laughs> you know, and so I really enjoy stand-up comedy in in the club setting. So now that you've got the show and, you know, you're getting up there, you're reading the prompter, mm-hmm. you're learning all these new skills mm-hmm. that are not that easy. No, it's not. There's no training for a TV show host other than being a TV show host. Right. And I think a lot about every all the... All the the things that people notice that I'm not doing well, I noticed them as I was doing them. So like I'm not, what? Like you know, there's just no tra- there's no training for delivering into a camera like you're like like they're like they're your friends. There's mm-hmm. no training for that. I'm still figuring that out, and I take a lot of I like not that I'm comparing myself to these people. I think about nobody thinks about the first season of Conan as being the classic season, you know. So I feel like if I'm giving that, the that, time, that definitely they don't think about that. No. Yeah, you know, and Conan's great, but he was able to grow. And I think about even the nobody quotes the first season of Seinfeld. Like I feel like it's given time. If I'm given the time by FX, and they seem to be giving me a little bit more, yeah, I will. Fi- I will figure it out because I believe in the content and the stuff we're doing. 
I'm just it, there's no training for that other than doing it. It's, right. That's trench warfare of its own, you know. And what what are you feeling about uh, your your skill set? I mean, what what do you think? You know, as you're moving into this process, what have you been conscious of doing better, or or what did you think were your shortcomings initially? Um, what what did I think are my shortcomings initially? Uh, you know, I think it's funny on some on a basic level. I didn't know I was heading towards being a TV talk show host. Uh huh. That was not something I was I was going for. So it's sort of weird to be thought of in that in that like the late night talk show hosts. Right. Like it's I just didn't think that. Now that I'm there, I have to accept that and just sort of do the best job of that that I can, you know, and and enjoy it. And I think I'm starting to enjoy it. I'm yeah. starting to enjoy relax it, a little relax bit. into the thing and and also you know uh, I'm starting to learn how to uh, a joke that's written. At two o'clock in the afternoon to do it at three, as if it's the joke you've. Well, that's the weird. That's the the trickiest thing, really, is that you know, as a comic who writes his own shit, and then all of a sudden, like you know, like it's hard to have faith in a joke you didn't write that you've never heard come out of your. That, that that's you've, right. That you've never heard a response. That's right. But then all of a sudden, you realize, like, wait, this audience is here for. They know exactly why they're here. It's a talk mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. They understand the format. Yeah. You know, these guys write good jokes, and yes. I wrote part of this yes. joke, and yeah. I've made it my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, and they're all jacked up, and then you you know you tell the joke, and it gets a laugh, and yeah. there's that beat where you're like, Dad, they're just playing their part, and then you're like, yeah, <laughs> shut up. You know, <laughs> maybe they're really laughing. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 all that shit. Yeah, no. So it's that's all happening, and now like I'm. You know, Chris talks about this all the time. He's like, the the difference between a, a comedian and a great comedian is a great comedian never worries about the audience. That a great comedian will just go out and, and sort of doesn't care about what the audience is. It'll just make the audience great. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm sure there's certainly arguments for and against that, but I think I, I'm understanding what that means. Just go out and do the thing. Uh-huh. Just go out and do the job and do it as good as you can and right. let the pieces fall with me instead of worrying about what these people out here are going to think about this thing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think you, 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 after a certain point, if you're not doing that, yeah. uh, you're just beating the shit out of yourself. Yes, yes. And so, at some point, you got to be like, oh, this, this is who I am. Yeah. That ain't changing. Yeah, no, and that's and right. and maybe the things that I do wrong one day will be like it's adorable how he does those things wrong. Like you know, I get some. That's the become, best you can hope for. <laughs> that is that your your yeah. insecurities actually become your 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 cute quirk? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that other people start trying to do those <laughs> things wrong. You know, I don't. You know, I mean, it's a very optimistic. That, guy. You know, that's just that's. But as you said before, I'm super thinky, and so you know, and that's I, I think about this all the time, like. You know, I'm live tweeting the show, and I'm on Twitter, and I'm getting live uh, responses from people, and 90% of it is great, but 10% of it is not great, and 50% of that 10% is accurate. You know, like so it's like it's the worst. I'm, I'm yeah, it's the worst when somebody hits you by the thing, and I want to sweep back. Yeah, I know, I'm working yeah. on it. You know, oh yeah, yeah. When it, when a troll hits you in your guts, you're like, yeah. how, how the fuck did he know that? That's so right. I shouldn't even do this anymore. Yeah. Wait a minute. That's yeah. what those people do. Yes, and and so you know, I I'm. I'm very aware of the things that I need to do better, and and also learning about things that I do, that I'm saying. Oh, I'm like these man on the street segments that we're doing. I'm having a lot of fun doing those, and I didn't know that I would like doing that. Yeah. You know? So um, there's all these things that I'm going. Oh, this is fun. Let's do more of these. You yeah. Know? Well, it's, I think it's hard for for uh, for me and maybe for you uh, being thinky is to get uh, get away from self consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That like you know just engage in the situation. You don't you know because that weird kind of like. 
oh my god this person's uncomfortable because we're talking like i watched a bit on the last show with the girls the little girls oh yeah one direction fan. yeah right even when those situations when i've had experience in doing bits like that you're like i'm, I'm in charge of this like i yes. have to talk to them and, and they're going to be little girls and, and it's i don't want them weird. to think i don't want them to think i'm weird not they, even just that this thing is weird but that why is this old man talking to were us were they and, actresses no yeah, they, they were they, they were, were real, fans of the band i mean so, so then you've got to deal with these real people who you're going to mm-hmm. throw a curveball that you mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily throw in general conversation and you just have to sit there and eat it yeah. while they're uncomfortable and every instinct in you wants to go like i'm just doing this because this it's a bit i'm sorry Get <laughs> yeah. your, where are your parents i need yeah. to apologize to you, you know I'm so, yeah. this yeah. is so this is tv they told me this is how it works i it's mean hard man and i think i am as you said earlier sensitive and we talk about this in the show pitches all the time that i didn't want to put them those little girls in a position where at the end of the day they felt like they had been punked you know and ultimately when it was over and they figured out what it was we, they were high-fiving and they were all like they kept we taped that that was one of the first things we taped for the show and they kept emailing us finding out when it was going to be on so it worked the way it was supposed to work but yeah they, that piece taught me a lot about just relax fucking relax like just don't yeah don't don't. i'm I'm not an asshole so i'm not going to be an asshole to anybody and also you can't you know there's you can't control the reaction that other people are going to have yes yeah because like when you do like uh even working on my show when you're scripting things is that you know at some point you you just got to own it Mm -hmm. and 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 trust the people that you're working with that you know it's not going to be too awkward even though it is awkward it still feels weird awkward is part of an awkward that thing awkward is part of the joke if it's not if if it's not awkward if i go hey girls here's what's going to happen i'm going to do this thing and you're right it's about islam then there's no joke right you have to put them on the hook right yeah they were very funny they yeah so and and i think that you know like we're I'm the first six episodes, and for a while, it's like you're watching the evolution of this guy become this thing, which is me, and we'll see how far it goes, but I certainly feel like I I can figure this out, you know? There's a lot of this stuff is like, the hard part is figuring out how to do jokes, and I've done that over the course of years. This is the part where it's like, oh, being on camera, and and, uh, reading the prompter naturally, and uh, where where should we put the camera so I can do a better job of that? And and luckily the staff we have is all very much trying to make sure that that happens the way I want it to, or that is best for the show. You know, but there's also the whole idea of writing with other comics, in that you know, who are sometimes your, who are your guys in there? Uh, we got uh, Nato Green, Janine Brito, uh, Kevin Avery, Kevin Kataoka, uh, Chuck Sklar, obviously Danny Vermont, um, Trey Ellis, who's actually a writer, writer <laughs> like like writes for Huffington. Danny Vermont moved to New York. For yeah, 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 and um, I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, oh, oh, your friend Hari Kondabolu. Oh, <laughs> angry Hari. <laughs> pretends not to be angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's a great bunch of writers. Yeah, and everybody, I mean, a lot of everybody, I mean, Danny and, and Kadoka have been around, but the rest of us are pretty new to this whole Chuck's thing. Chuck's been around. And Chuck's been around, but the rest of us, so there's that learning curve with all of them, too, is that you can't, we, some of us are quite thinky, and they're like, you can't be so thinky, get to the punchline. It's TV. And and, and uh, Chuck's the showrunner? Chuck's the showrunner, Well, it's yeah. good that you have an old Jew running the show. Yeah, to, yeah. To temper yeah. the jokes. It is, <laughs> it, it is in the entertainment business, after all, so we should keep an old Jew in charge. But yeah, I mean, sometimes there's questions about the tone of or the angle of a joke, and I'm like, I don't think I can say that, because I think there's a lot more in our show talking about that than there is on other shows. Right, but you've got a nice ethnic mix, you've got uh, a gender mix, and yeah. you've got, you know, 
know, you got Danny who used to work with Bill Maher. Yes, Danny, and Danny's and, great. Danny has been the voice of reason a lot of times around there. You no, know, no, he's a great guy, and he's a great writer. And I, you know, I remember when he was doing a lot of comedy. I mean, it, you know, he did. Uh, he's good, man. He's yeah. good. That's a good crew. And Kevin is good. Yeah, that's good joke writers, buddy. Yeah. So now this thing, like, when was? Have you always had a relationship with your old man, or is it new? No, no, no. I've always, uh, I, you know, like I had the thing where every I would live with my mom, and then every summer I'd go to Alabama and live with my dad. That uh, was just the that was my. Oh, summer. that was the way it worked. Yeah, that was the way it worked. <laughs> like, I mean, they weren't. My parents were never married, so there was no like legal. Like, how does this? What does the court say? I'm just, just I mean, and I'm not saying that in any judgmental way. I'm just curious about you know how their relationship with you has changed with uh, with the fact. That you're on television. I mean, what's your your mom must be thrilled. She's thrilled. They're both thrilled. But they, if they were to walk in this room right now and you didn't know them, you'd be like, "Why does it feel weird in here all of a sudden?" <laughs> like, like they're still angry about things that happened a long time ago, or oh, to, uh, or, or tense about things that happened a long time ago. And when they're both in the room, I have to attend to each of them separately. I can't attend to them as a group. Isn't that weird? Like you know, when you think of lifetimes and and you think about. You know, like in your own life, you know, how much shit has gone under the bridge and, you know, those weird moments that were so angry and raw and you thought you'd never get, get you know, recover from them. But there's still a couple of things that just, it's just never going to be right. Yeah. You know, and you only have one lifetime. Either you're going to do it or you're not. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's weird that it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to live with that one. Yeah, no, I think it's <laughs> like, know? and I'm, I'm, be, I'm beyond, you know, every kid has that point where like, maybe I can get my parents to da 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 da, da or they could fall, or whatever. My dad's been married for over 30 years to another woman. My mom's never remarried or never been, you know, since then. And so I just sort of know that this is just what I have to deal with. And every now and again, I have to call one of them or the other one. Usually my mom, I'm like, mom, just come. He didn't say anything mean or you're just being tense. But, but, that, <laughs> but that's also the dialogue that we have. Like, you know, if you really look at how old America is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that what you're saying that, you know, we have to have conversations uh, that are continuing, you know, uh, the evolution of of the dialogue of race mm-hmm. that and, and like you see that things get better with age. Yes. So are you <laughs> are you optimistic that that, you know, even in that dialogue as, as America, you know, that we're not moving backwards, certainly. I think I mean, I, I believe that things and I'll say in America, I can't speak for the world things move in a more progressive direction in general. Like this is the nature of, of evolution is that things are always, you know, as we're talking about gay marriage now, you know, daily, we weren't ready to talk about gay people 50 years ago. So I think in general, that's why I think, uh, like when the right gets really tense about things, I'm like, this stuff is all inevitable. Like people are always going to pursue more freedoms and more and the freedom to be who they are. So let's, like I said, get past the gay thing because gender is coming next. You know, so I I do have hope, and I think that's why I like doing the show because the show is sort of predicting the future in that way. Like we're we're all going to be over this stuff. But right, but there is no question that that the presidency of Barack Obama kicked the the racial dialogue in the balls yes <laughs> yes that, that despite you know whatever if if anybody wants to accuse somebody of being racist because they're not voting for him that's not even the issue anymore it is what it is so shut the fuck up <laughs> right well, well or the, it it it's certainly you know you know as i've said before what's a better recruit recruiting clan for the what's a better recruiting tactic for a ku klux klan other than a black president right you know like it it sort of it it, it reopened a discussion that a lot of people thought was done 
Right. And so we're talking about race every day on the news, which for me is great. Uh, but, but there's no better. Like the the weird thing is, is that he does not like he is just being a dude mm-hmm. who's doing that job. Yes. And yes. no matter what the people who who don't like him hang on him, like it it is not gotten as racist as you would have thought it had gotten. Well, no, that that's, there's well, yeah, he's uh he's alive. You know, like I think that this. <laughs> Yes, yes, that was certainly the test of what we thought how racist it was going to be when we had a black president, and it hasn't gotten there. Yay! Not, not <laughs> you know when I'm, you know, yeah, not even an attempt. Not even, not even. A, yeah, who knows if there's been an attempt, but not a newsworthy one. You know, not a. You know, apparently gets more hate mail than any president, but you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. know, that's what happens. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, there's certainly a sense that, but I, and I think that's a testament to how he does himself. Yeah. Like, he's very much aware. I think the fact that Barack Obama is actually of a white parent and a black parent is is why he's able to get through this the way he is. Like, uh-huh. he very much is always reaching out to white people because he had to reach out to his relatives. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, there's not a sense that he's he's not the black president from Detroit that we thought we were going to get. Yeah, and he, also not, the, not uh, you know, uh, progressive to the core either. Yeah, no, no. He's, uh, you know, I sort of say sometimes I think of him as a really kind Republican. <laughs> you know, like, that, like, if you think about him like that, then he suddenly you can accept, the, you can sort of, it, it all makes sense, you know. Uh, why isn't he putting that in his platform? <laughs> <laughs> Just to tip the scales. Just to tip the scales, I think, because then they'll tip, far, what, they'll tip too far the other way. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, you know, everybody's working for somebody. Exactly. Thanks, man. Thank you. That's it. We did it. We covered it all. We got a we got closure on that debate. W. Kamal Bell, as I said at the top, go to uh com. You can get tickets for his new tour, the Kamal Mao Kamal Mao Uprising Tour, launching in December. If you want to go see Al Madrigal for free, tape his special for some outlet. That's Thursday, October 25th. Two shows at the Moody Theater in Austin. You can go to almadrigal.com and sign up for free tickets. You can go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. Kick in a few shekels, get some merch, get the app, upgrade to the premium app. Get on that email list. I will email you. Leave a comment. Try not to be a douchebag, but if you're going to be a douchebag, make it intelligent. What else? I got to go memorize my lines. Pow! Look out! I just shit my pants, and I've got to go deal with that. JustCoffee.coop, available at WTFPod.com. Boomy lives! <laughs>